0: I'm going to pick up this idea under construction, and um, you know, for those visiting today, we are basing this loosely on a letter from the Apostle Peter. He wrote this to a, a, a young church uh, that was over in, uh, believed to be in, in ancient, what is now Turkey. It was an ancient part of Turkey there, and um, it was a young church. They had some pretty big things going on around them at the time. Uh, we're talking, the timing of this time is, there was a young paranoid lunatic running the empire at the time, and uh, we know him in history as Nero, and his persecution on the church was severe, um, but also uh, the church should have been pulling together in the face of all that. But we also know just human nature can be so fallen and damaged at times. And in the church even there, there are leaders going into business for themselves and, and, and just uh, you know, doing things to build their own agendas and, and, and really you know, distort the gospel and do harm to people with their behavior. And you know, we, we hear about that in nowadays. It makes the headlines. But it was going on even 30 years into the life of the church and it's never been okay, and it's never been okay with the Lord to do that. But it's been present also, which is sad. But the Apostle Peter is actually writing here a number of virtues in this letter, and um, he's, he's instructing the church to embrace these virtues, and if they took these virtues on, then they would stand strong. When the church persecutes, they would stand strong. And also when... Those guys going into the into business for themselves were going to try and seduce you and lead you out of the gospel that you knew. These virtues would also help you stay strong in the face of that too. And so we are exploring these virtues, and we have a building project going on around me here um, that, that is, we're using this to tell a story along the way, and, and um, we've had a, a foundational month. Because one, one of the virtues laid out is faith, and if you're going to build your, your this life thing, this thing called Christianity, this thing called discipleship, then your only foundation is faith. If you're building on anything else, it is going to crumble. You now, in Thailand, we were visiting a school ground, and and one of the foundations they've laid there, they're explaining it looks okay to me, but they're explaining that they're going to need to break it down and start again with it because they were using, they were getting cement set up up, but were using river sand to mix that to make the foundation and the river sand was full of contaminants so it wasn't going to hold forever we can have all sorts of things we build our life on, have different foundations built on but faith in Christ alone is everything you need to build on right there Peter lays faith as the foundation, and then he says to faith, add goodness. And we have been describing that as a frame. Something that everything is going to be hanging off of. Something that I talked about the Greek concept of of goodness being excellent conduct and excellent character. And when you have conduct and character equal to each other, you get integrity, which is really good for a structure to have. And so we've got this little thing of integrity going all around us here. And and in the last couple of weeks, and we'll be building on this, we're going to be talking about knowledge. And uh, this wall in front of me here is obviously that. Knowledge in and of itself is pointless without faith being set up first. Paul says in 1, 1 Corinthians 8 that knowledge can puff up. It can build our ego, it can inflate our ego. Knowledge can really fill our heads with big things and, and inflate our egos and make us feel good about ourselves, but if it's not attached to faith in any way, then it's, it's nice, but it's not worth having. We understand that faith saves us, not knowledge. We're saved by faith, not by, by who we place our full trust in, not what we know. Knowledge is not our foundation, like the world around us is. Faith is. And we can't have do much with knowledge without godly integrity either. Knowledge won't develop into its maturest form, which is wisdom, without integrity to hang it off. Knowledge without integrity is a dangerous thing. The futurist, Elvin Toffler, Wrote a book in, and I was given this copy when I was 16, and it's the first non fiction book I ever read as a 16 year old Power Shift. He writes there that the transfer of knowledge is a transfer of power, and that knowledge is a very powerful force indeed. And if you don't have integrity and you're transferring knowledge, you're giving power and putting it lightning in a bottle. And it's, it's, if you don't have integrity with power, it doesn't become wisdom and it does harm instead of good. I'll say for now that in Christian discipleship, knowledge has nothing, if it has nothing structurally sound sound to hang off, then we're going after the wrong sort of knowledge. And we're going to be talking about knowledge and going into wisdom, into May. And so it's really good to start understanding knowledge in a really full-on way at this time. So I'm going to share a bit of scripture with you today about knowledge. I'm glad it's a cubby house. I could not dwell in that. I'm actually going to be, I've got a bit of a journey in the Old Testament today. And uh, just to throw a few thoughts in there uh, about knowledge. And I'm going to start with Exodus chapter 33. They're all going to be on screen with us. The Bible app, the U Version Bible app, is open and has an event in there. So if you go to the events tab, you'll find our church, you will find this sermon notes series. There's a lot of fill the blank in, which means if you you, know, you have to listen and write your own stuff down. So, But the Bible verses are all provided in that as well. So Exodus 33, verse 12 to 17 is what we're going to look at first. And then after that, I'm going to go over to Psalm 139. So I'll just give you the heads up on those two now. Let me just read these two out to you this time. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favour with me. Well, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Let me go over to Psalm 139. David's reflection here. Verse 1 to 6. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways before a word is on my tongue. You, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. I want to start today with my random thoughts on knowledge today, with this one sentence today. Knowledge is a language of intimacy. My first thought, knowledge and intimacy are closely related. There is the idea of intimate interaction within the Trinity throughout the whole of Scripture. This is in place from creation onwards. Let us make man in our image. There is intimate knowledge of each other just for creation to occur. In Matthew 11, Jesus speaks about this intimacy in terms of knowledge. In verse 27, he says, nobody knows the Son except the Father. And nobody knows the Father except the Son. So there's things about God that you and I are never, ever going to fathom. And we will echo the same thing David said. Such knowledge is too lofty for me to attain. There are things that only the Godhead know about each other and get. There is this intimacy involved in the Godhead, in the Trinity. And building on this, we understand that mankind is made in the image of God, and he has the same capacity for that type of intimacy and knowledge. It's interesting that intimate marital expressions in the King James Version are talked about knowing one another. Depth of relationship comes out of this idea of knowledge that transcends mere intellectual pursuit. There is something deeper going on than simply what is filling your mind when we talk about biblical knowledge. We're talking about something of intimacy going on, particularly with our knowledge of God. Being made in God's image means that He is deeply concerned about us knowing Him in intimacy. And these two passages we've just read out here today are just some of the ways this is spoken about in Scripture. The psalm acknowledges that whether we're aware of it or not, or even if we like it or not, God, our Creator, knows us in the most intimate way. He knows all our foibles. He knows all our thoughts. He knows all our inclinations, not just what we do, but everything we're likely to do also. Before we think something, He knows what's going through our minds. Before we say something, He knows the journey towards our lips. God ordained this psalm to appear in Scripture, I believe, because he wants us to come to this awareness in us. And to arrive at the same position of awe that David reaches. This knowledge about God is just too wonderful for me. I am blown away by how intimately well God knows me. See, the modern pagan thought of God is a set-and-forget sort of God. God is aloof. God is unreachable. God has forgotten about us. God has left us behind. God has set us up to fail. There's all sorts of perceptions of God in the world around us. But we walk and we know through faith in this knowledge that God knows us ever so deeply. And when God reveals his intimate knowledge of us, his most desired outcome is that we would indeed seek to intimately know him also. This is what is going on with Moses and his conversation with the Lord. He's up on the mountain at this time. He's been aware for a few years that God knows him and his whole nation and and all this stuff by name and in nature. And now he's at that place where he himself simply needs to know God in a similarly powerful way. The request of Moses is twofold as he does this. I want to know your glory and your presence. And I want to know your way. I need to be aware of your presence. I need to know what that presence feels like. Not so I can have a Steven Spielberg moment in my devotion time. Not so I can feel the chills. Not so I can have a hair stand up on the back of my arm. But so I don't fear it and draw to it instead. I want to know your presence and your glory. And I need to know how you think. What things please you? What things move your heart? What value system you have? Why? He's a leader of his nation. Why does he need to know God that way? In order to be an imitator and a proclaimer of those things. James 4, 8 tells us to draw near to God and He will draw near to us. There is an invitation to know God at the closest of quarters for all who believe. There is a desire for intimacy that God has for us. And as we become aware of this, there should also be a desire in us feel the same way. Christianity is not merely a case of saying a prayer and avoiding hell. In fact, it's not a matter of living in a constant state of being saved from things, although that is somewhat true. Ultimately, our question should be more like, what am I saved for? when we think of it that way, we will inevitably draw near to God and know Him the way He wants us to. And as we know Him, things begin to change in us. I'm going to explore another interesting passage here. I want us to go to Jeremiah 22. So I've said so far that knowledge is the language of intimacy. Let me make another point here now. Actually, let me build on that, literally. So we've got knowledge being the language of intimacy. There's my marker. There's my other one. There we go, intimate relationship with God, sorted. <laughs> Jeremiah 22. This is, what, this is a random one until I explain it, just go with me on this. This is what the Lord says about Shalem, son of Josiah, who succeeded his father as king of Judah, but has gone from this place. He will never return. He will die in the place where they have led him captive. He will not see this land again. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels with cedar and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood, and on oppression and extortion. That's a bit of a dark one to ponder, isn't it? I had a great chat with one of our young people last year, and um, and it was a mind-blowing chat. It was I, I just love the teenagers we have in our church and the depth that they seek after the Lord and this, the way they go after Scripture is amazing. We had a probably about a ninety-minute conversation on the question about who in Scripture fitted the bill of an ideal king for Israel. I had a lot of respect for that conversation at the end. It was awesome. In that conversation, David got a good mention. One of my own personal picks was um, Hezekiah. That was one that was in my mind. I thought he had, he had a good run. Josiah got an honorable mention as well. Both those latter kings, Hezekiah and Josiah were instrumental in bringing their nations back on track with the Lord. And we read that calamity was held at bay because of their leadership in those times and their godliness in those times. Josiah's son and grandson were not the godly men of their heritage. Judah was captured and defeated by Babylon under their leadership. This passage in Jeremiah shows us how God weighed up the differences between Josiah and those who came after him. Shelem, a.k.a. Jehoaz, threw the law of the Lord and Josiah's sense of justice completely out the window. He built his own kingdom. He exploited others to do so. He sought after the approval of man and the pleasure of himself. Despite being an anointed person who held a role where justice, mercy, and godliness was expected of him. And his decisions cost him and his nation dearly. He goes down in history as a failed leader in every way. And God asks some pretty tough questions here. Does it make you a king when you amass more than you'll ever need? Is that the goal of leadership and power and influence? To get more and more? To build an empire for yourself that's just going to stand forever simply on its fortune? Does it make you a king to hold all the power and use it to exploit others? Do we want to be in positions of power and influence, whether it be in the church or outside of it, for our own gain? If the answer to any of that is yes, then there's an indicator there that we don't know God anywhere near enough if that's our pursuit. Instead, we have here a reminder of the way of Josiah and the resulting outcome. The last righteous king of Judah in the Old Testament defended the cause of the needy and the poor, and in doing so, he demonstrated that he knew God. As I think about all that, I come to my second point here today. With God, true knowledge aligns us with His agenda. And we find that agenda utterly compelling. Friends, do we have an outlook on life that is attuned to the agenda of God? aligned with the agenda of God, tapped into the heart of God, pursuing what matters to Him most? Do we even know what matters deeply to Him? Do we know what part we are to play in carrying out His agenda? Or are we more concerned about fulfilling our own? Let's get super-duper honest for a moment here. As we look at our life and the choices and the way we lay out our calendar, lay out our future plans, lay out our current attitudes towards the world around us, which of the agendas is actually more compelling to us? The one of God or the one of ourselves? Is it bricks and mortar, power and position? Or the mission of God in reconciling the world to Himself with mercy, justice and love? Searching questions, aren't they? A pursuit of knowledge leads us to ask those sorts of questions in our life. They bring us to a place of realness with God. So, as I think about knowledge today, one, knowledge is the language of intimacy. Second, knowledge aligns us with God's more compelling agenda. And finally, godly knowledge will always point us towards Christ. And I'm staying in the Old Testament as I illustrate this Jeremiah 31. And then Isaiah 11. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. And I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. This is a future hope of a new covenant fulfilled in Christ. And Hebrews points to this passage saying, this has been fulfilled or is still being fulfilled because there will be a time where everybody knows the Lord. But Christ is what this is pointing to. When it says, know the Lord, it is pointing us to Christ. Isaiah 11, 1-9 A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But in righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give directions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod in his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt. Faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with a the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and a young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the the sea some great future hope pointing to what Christ accomplishes friends true knowledge will be revealed when we look right into the face of Christ and the old testament actually anticipates that god who operates in intimate knowledge with himself, who desires intimate knowledge of us, became a man and dwelt among those whom he wanted to know and be known by. And in his appearing, true knowledge would also be apparent the knowledge of God's heart, the knowledge of God's intentions, the knowledge of God's desire for justice and peace, the knowledge of God's agenda and mission in the world, the knowledge of God's entire plan of of redemption and reconciliation. This was going to be displayed to mankind at a deeper level than ever before. The time is both at hand and still to come where God is more tangibly present than ever before because of Christ. And knowledge is not a matter of just simply getting our head right. But true knowledge is appealing to our hearts and the depths of our being. And as we engage with Jesus, as we seek him, and interact with His Spirit, and listen to Him, and learn from Him, we find the type of knowledge that gives our lives meaning, and aligns us to His plans and purpose. Friends, that's knowledge. Let's get the other bit nailed down. All the people on the front sort of duck at this time. We have knowledge being the language of intimacy. We have knowledge that aligns us with God's agenda. And we have knowledge that points to and causes us to behold... That's about typical for me. I say all this because the church Peter is writing to has some issues with knowledge at the moment and this was only going to get worse in the near future for them. Knowledge was fast emerging as the currency of the charlatan in their midst. They would persuasively present their case that they were in the know about things that the apostles and the teachers in their midst were withholding from them. They would go on to claim all sorts of inner circle revelations and knowledge that would set them apart from the others. This so-called knowledge would cause others to sell out their convictions, sell out their morality, in order to satisfy the ambitions of these emerging false teachers. And these teachers were not there for the betterment of the people they were leading. They were there solely for the agenda and for the plans and purposes of themselves. Thirty years later, the Apostle John will be writing to the same region, aware of this group who were now being called Gnostics. Built on the word gnosis, knowledge. Those with the knowledge. And he was calling them out, not as wonderful contributors to the church, but as antichrists. Enamored with the knowledge of the world, their only agenda was themselves and what they would amass. In Philippians 3.19, Paul describes these false guys as the enemies of the cross of Christ. And he goes on to say this, Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their, their glory is in their shame, and their mind is set on earthly things. Friends, I've met a lot of people who call themselves Christians today, leaders and otherwise, whose mind is entirely set on earthly things. Worldly knowledge and those who wielded it was a seductive force in the church. And it did all the things that godly knowledge did not. A knowledge of God brings us into intimate relationship with Him as our Creator. And because of that, builds our relationship with each other as well. The worldly knowledge calls us to go it alone and be aloof from others. It calls us to dodge the hard questions and actually live in a very shallow reality. A knowledge of God calls us to an outlook and an agenda that is actually different and more compelling than our own. Worldly knowledge is all about its own appetite and agenda. And a knowledge of God always points us fully to Jesus. Worldly knowledge of which the church is not immune will take our eyes anywhere but the cross. It's interesting here that Paul calls these false teachers enemies, not just of the church, but enemies of the cross of Christ. They'll give Jesus lip service. They will use his name for their own gain. But their words won't challenge us, won't call us to take up our cross. Too many church people refuse to live a cruciform life. A cross-shaped life. And if we just turn the video towards me, not the screen, please, babe. A number of weeks ago, I met people who understood what living a cross-shaped life was. I won't say where or how for the sake of a recording. The number two vow on their lips is will you lay your life down for this thing you believe now? As a pastor, we're laying hands on these people. Knowing full well that the person I'm praying for may well actually not be here, not be present to celebrate together a year later. Baptist vows in Australia are nowhere near as intense as these ones. I've been deeply impacted by people who understand what it means to take up their cross to live a cross-shaped life. How we pursue knowledge, what we do with knowledge is actually a really big part of how we pursue as how we pursue Christ. I'll get these guys, that's a bit emotional. I'll get back to us. With all of that said, I just want to come to a point of reflection amongst us now. What is the state of knowledge in our lives? What is knowledge producing in us? Where is knowledge steering us? What agendas are in our sights? What are our relationships like? Upward, between you and God, and sideward with each other. What is the state of our intimate place with God? These are all indicators of the nature of knowledge that we're working with. Is the Lord calling us to something better this morning? Is the Lord calling us to something deeper this morning? Is there conviction forming about the place we're currently in? Is there correction that the Spirit wants to do in us this morning? Then we're actually going to pause here and we're going to stop. I was going to get everybody to bow their heads for a moment. And this is where real business with God takes place. Psalm 139, you have searched me and you know me. You know all my ways. And such knowledge is too wonderful for me. The God who knows us intimately is present in this place today. And he's at hand to do a transformative work in our lives if need be. Is any part of this morning gripping you, moving you, speaking to you, convicting you. Then we're going to pause now. We're going to let the Spirit of God do what He needs to do in us. I want to really encourage you at this time. Let us respond to what the Spirit is saying at this time. Things need alignment. Don't ignore that. if pursuits need to change, if agendas need to shift, if outlooks need to change, let the Spirit do that work today. Lord, we come to you and we give you space and permission. Give us a fresh revelation of just how deeply you know us. You have known me and you search me. You know me by name. In response, may we echo uh, Moses' cry. Teach me your way. Show me your glory.